Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians 1, 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Coloss, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the spirit. Amen. Uh, greetings to everyone as we arrive uh, at the second Sunday of the new year, uh, temporarily still in our fully remote format. Um, I am so looking forward to resuming in person next Sunday. Uh, as Peter mentioned, I trust that you have had some time to reflect upon the message delivered by Pastor Taylor Field last Sunday on relying and remaining in God's love. Uh, I found uh, processing the message uh, challenging uh, through a couple of experiences this past week, but I uh, quite appreciated the timeliness of it. Uh, as I was praying over and selecting our 2022 key verse from Colossians 1, 29, uh, I began to uh, read the surrounding context and eventually read the entire chapter and then the whole letter. Uh, I found that I liked much of what was said, not only about Christian ministry, but about Jesus Christ, about his church, uh, and even about practical considerations for living a Christian life. And then as we did uh, late December devotion time through the book, uh, I began to mull over the possibility of perhaps having us go through the entire book of Colossians uh, via Sunday sermons. Uh, I'm still praying about whether uh, to do that or not, uh, but I did uh, find that chapter one, uh, culminating with our key verses, really spoke to me. Uh, thusly, I'd like to share uh, my first uh, few Sunday messages of the year from these texts. Uh, today's message uh, will serve somewhat as an introduction to the entire letter, but focus on the way that Paul introduces himself, uh, how he addresses the church at Colossae, and how he refers to the character of the gospel. I ascribed uh, the title Spiritual Signatures uh, to get a sense of these important characterizations. Uh, kind of like how uh, we use the phrase a signature dish at a great restaurant or something that makes them stand out or what they become known for or flourish in. That, that's what I mean by spiritual signatures. Uh, commonly understood, signatures are subscribed at the end right, of a letter or communique as a means of conclusion, identification, and sometimes authentication. But when we look at Paul's epistles as a genre, 
uh, we can get the impression that the way he ends his letters are actually quite varied. The section where we can actually find more of a pattern is in the beginning, in the greeting, some of which tracks the epistolary, uh, epistolary genre or formula of the time. But in Paul, you'll find certain details that can be said to be uh, decisively Pauline. Uh, there we'll find some consistency and regularity, or as I'm trying to convey today, um, a signature style. Uh, what I hope to do today then is to have us look at Paul's signature or self-reference. This will be followed by looking at the spiritual signature of the church at Colossae, uh, and then consideration of one of the essential features of the gospel. Uh, at least according to the first eight verses uh, in this uh, book of the Bible. So you have the verse designations there. Uh, let's start with uh, Paul's signature as formulated in his greeting. First off, we can observe that Paul is communicating a certain sense of identity. Identity. Uh, he refers to himself on a consistent basis as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Uh, the term apostle was considered a, a technical one during Paul's uh, time. In wider usage, the term apostle meant something like an authorized emissary. Authorized emissary. In Christian circles, uh, it was uh, uh, narrow, narrowed down to uh, referring to the uh, the 12 original apostles of Jesus, right? men that he chose, discipled, trained during his earthly ministry. And then after Jesus died and resurrected and ascended in the era of the early church, a few others were given this uh, designation as well, who were not originally part of the 12. They included James, the brother of Jesus, and the leader of the Jerusalem church, also, Matthias, who assumed the vacated slash forfeited apostleship of Judas Iscariot, and the Apostle Paul, to uh, name the most prominent. I'm sorry, I'm going to close my window because you can hear the sirens. Okay, welcome to virtual church. Um, Paul converted to Christianity uh, quite late in comparison to these others. Uh, his famous conversion uh, story on the road to Damascus was not only an efficacious uh, way in leading him to repent of his God-opposing ways, but provided him an eyewitness encounter with the risen Lord. It seems that one of the criteria of apostleship was to have been an eyewitness, have seen Jesus, um, a living Jesus, right? Although Paul did not see Jesus when he was alive, he clearly met the resurrected Jesus. So this, along with the acknowledgement and verification of the call of God upon his life, these were hallmarks, right? Consistent with what it meant to be an apostle. Right. Further, Paul makes it clear that his apostleship was initiated and affirmed 
and sustained by the will of God and no other. Paul was able to spectacularly change uh, into from a persecutor of the early church to become uh, the apostle to the Gentiles because this was God's uh, sovereign plan. So Paul's identity is as an apostle of Christ right, by the will of God. Identity, right? it's a crucial aspect of the human condition, uh, how we understand ourselves uh, and see other, ourselves, how we understand ourselves and see ourselves uh, comprise a very important uh, part of how we interact with the world and with others. Uh, it says a lot about our signature and our fingerprints um, that we leave behind. Uh, identity is often understood um, by many people in terms of biological descent, whether it be an ethnic designation or one related to uh, language or culture. Uh, some people define their identity based on other physical personality or sociological factors. Uh, in America, um, one of the predominant means of self-identification uh, relates to profession. The most common question people ask each other when meeting for the first time uh, relates to the job or occupation one holds. What do you do? Uh, it's almost equivalent to who are you? The identity being that your actions, your deeds, your job, your earning capacity define you uh, in, in a core sense. But for Paul, the most important and essential identity was relation. The relation that was found in his relation to Jesus Christ and God's call upon his life. Paul did not set out to be an apostle of the church. He didn't sign up for it. His headlong rush uh, into uh, or push to Phariseeism and legalistic righteousness, that was full stop, fully checked by the blinding experience on the Damascus Road. Accordingly, uh, how Paul saw himself became firmly tied to that encounter, that relational uh, interaction uh, with the resurrected Jesus, Lord Jesus, the head of the church, whom Paul had been severely persecuting at the time. Uh, when Paul realized that Jesus was God, he not only changed the direction of his life, but how and who he saw himself as. So that's his signature. I am a new creation. I am somebody different from who I set myself out to be. I am defined by a relationship. I am, I belong to Jesus. That's my most important signature. But has that identity formation occurred in us? Right. Maybe it started, but it's been kind of stuck. Uh, have we renewed it uh, recently? Is that kind of the becoming more and more the core, more and more the foundation of what makes me go, of how I see myself, how I make choices? What's your core identity? Is it your profession? Uh, is it your family? Is it as an American? Um, is it connected to, to others? Or is there something else altogether? Uh, I 
hope that can be one of the uh, points of reflection uh, for us uh, through this message. What's a two or three word self-description that comes to mind? What's your signature? Uh, another aspect of Paul's signature relates to how he sees himself in relationship to other believers. He mentions Timothy, our mutual brother. Timothy, as you know, may, uh, may know was Paul's spiritual son in the faith. He led him to Christ. He trained Timothy to be a co-laborer in the harvest field. And eventually Timothy became one of the pastors among Paul's network of churches. And together they accomplished the planning of churches and built relationships among the various congregations. Paul refers to Timothy and the other believers at Colossae as brothers, brothers and sisters. Uh, this viewpoint was more than one of convenience or, or custom. Paul really saw himself and other believers as fellow sharers in the divine blood of Christ. They were not biological siblings or ethnically connected, but spiritual kin, bonded by the common blood of Christ shed on behalf of their sins. There was solidarity in not only being fellow sinners, but fellow forgiven sinners right? through the atoning blood of Christ. Paul defines himself, uh, I think, in an important sense in relationship, not only to Jesus Christ, but to other believers. He's not an island. He's not a solo actor. He's not seeking. Uh, he's not setting out to seek his own spiritual fortune, fending for his own spiritual self. No, Paul sees his identity as being in relation to others. I have mentioned before this African proverb I heard, I am, I am because we are, right? I am because we are. It suggests that personal identity is intertwined with corporate identity. Paul sees himself as incomplete or indeterminate without his relationship with others in Christ. Let that sink in a little bit. And my signature depends on our signature. Um, this is made further intriguing by the fact that Paul was not the technical founder of the Colossian church. Right? Most scholars attribute that designation to Epaphras, right? He's mentioned. He came, Epaphras came from the region um, and he's typically viewed as the founder or the, the starter of the Colossian church. Numerous people, though, believe that Epaphras may have been commissioned or dispatched by Paul to preach the gospel to the people at Colossae. So the Colossians, um, because of Paul's, you know, kind of, uh, well, he was well known, they must have heard of him, but uh, probably not many of them met him personally. Yet Paul speaks confidently of a brotherhood, uh, sisterhood with these fellow followers of Christ. Okay, last thing about Paul's signature is he frequently made use of the reference grace and peace to you, right? So from God through Paul to the letter recipient, to the addressees, grace and peace. Why of all virtues uh, did Paul frequently choose to round out his opening greeting in this manner? Right? Commentators note that Paul seems to have deliberately adapted uh, the customary phrase used for greeting, right? The word greetings 
Like we sometimes say that in emails or, or you know, announcements, greetings. So, so in the Greek, greetings is, uh, uh, the word is kai uh, rein. So C, it starts with the Greek letter kai, kai rein. It sounds similar to the Greek word for grace. The Greek word for grace is charis, right? Again, the, the, the chi. So grace, of course, is a characteristic signature word uh, for the Christian vocabulary, uh, a term that Christians have taken up in order to em emphasize the a dynamic outreaching generosity of God, which believers had experienced through the gospel. So Paul takes kind of a wordplay, takes ka'arin, instead of just saying greeting, so let's say grace as his greeting, uh, which is similar in, in the Greek charis. And then fittingly, the usage of peace seems to have arisen from the typical greeting in a Jewish letter composition. So a Jewish letter would greet with the term shalom, right? Shalom, which, you know, it means uh, a sense of wishing a full and restful harmony uh, found in God, only found in God. Right? So uh, Paul is kind of, the suggestion is that Paul is bringing the greeting in Greek and the greeting, the typical greetings in Greek and, and, um, and Hebrew, and then he's adapting it to the Christian emphasis, right, of grace and peace, right, in Christ. So he's kind of taking the essence of each language and culture and applying it in spiritual terms, right? The shalom of creation, of Sabbath, of covenant, right, along with the charis of election, atonement, adoption, right? These are notable pieces of his signature prayer and desire for his readers. All right, so that's kind of a survey of at least what I gleaned from Paul's signature. This is how he sees himself, how he wants to be known, right? When you hear this kind of greeting, when you read it, you want to think of Paul the man, Paul the apostle, Paul the servant, Paul the brother. Uh, let's move on to the signature of the Colossians. I'm going to keep this part hopefully brief because Paul will, through the course of the entire missive, refer to what the Colossians were like, both strengths and weaknesses, uh, whether it was a problem that Paul's addressing or an attribute that he just, he's describing about them. We, we can learn what made the Christ, Colossians church tick, and that, that'll be seen as we progress through the chapter, either in sermons or in your reading. What kind of place was Colossae? It was a major Greco-Roman city in Asia Minor, located in the Lycus Valley. Um, the, the city was similar, similar situated with nearby cities of Laodicea and uh, Hierapolis. Um, indeed, in chapter 416 of the book, Paul instructs that this, this same letter to the Colossians be read to the fellow congregation at Laodicea, so there is connection there. Uh, whereas uh, Colossae had indeed, uh, had initial greater prominence than its sister cities. Eventually the letter, uh, the latter two, uh, Laodicea and Heropolis, they became better known than Colossae due to commerce and the thermal springs for which the area uh, was famous. 
Uh, in fact, scholars still debate uh, why Paul wrote to the Colossian community. In general, it is a positively oriented address. There are no blatant heresies or doctrinal errors. He feels compelled to correct, or at least they are not that obvious. Paul does seem, however, to reference certain features uh, of the church that uh, maybe was not uh, up to um, theological orthodoxy, such as uh, spiritual fullness, asceticism, and, and a certain kind of superiority complex that seems to be creeping in. Um, uh, to these, uh, uh, Paul, uh, the main argument that Paul will talk about uh, is, the, is Christ's sufficiency. Right? So we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But uh, the point is that uh, every church, all churches, certainly our church, is a work in progress, right? There are certain strengths and certain weaknesses, right? Uh, to, to, to acknowledge that, to um, really bring that before the Lord, um, to ask for the Holy Spirit's help, I think is, is a healthy uh, and necessary and important way of a church developing a signature. Um, what does Paul say specifically about the Colossians in verses four to five? Uh, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel. Uh, well, well, <laughs> what we find is that they're characterized by the familiar triumvirate of faith, hope, and love. Wait, that was our 2021 key verse. Uh, here, Paul uh, structures hope as the source of faith and love. Now, I'm not sure that he's being, stating this kind of in an absolute sense. It, it works for what he's trying to say. The emphasis is that the Colossians, uh, that the hope, their hope in heaven provided the outcroppings right, of faith and love. And that hope was grounded in the word of truth, the gospel that was proclaimed to them. Now, because of the salvation receivable in the gospel, the Colossians' hope and assurance of heavenly of a heavenly future, that was rock solid, stayed. Um, that hope, furthermore, was not inert, but productive, springing forth into faith and love. Right? Faith, of course, has its object, Christ Jesus, and love is for all of us sinners uh, turned saints. So, these were robust things, right? Faith in Christ, love for all the sinners, uh, hope of heaven. At the beginning of 22, it is fitting that uh, we take stock again uh, as a church and uh, ourselves as constituents of that church, of this church, right? So what's our corporate signature? Does it please God? Do we at least have a faith and love that springs from the hope of heaven, individually and as a group? What we do, uh, what do we do individually and collectively that promotes that endeavor? Where do we get more faith in Christ? How do we uh, increase love for all the saints? How do we more firmly gird ourselves in the hope of heaven? And on the other hand, what do we do individually and collectively which hampers that development? Maybe we undermine love. Maybe we relegate hope to uh, some kind of a distant box in, 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 our, in our lives, compartmentalize it. 
maybe our faith is not robust. And so collectively we're dragging this down. I think it helps to think through this, pray through this. Uh, the third and last type of signature that I wanted to point out today is that of the gospel itself. In verse 6, especially, Paul talks about what the gospel does. He does not refer to the content or truth of the gospel per se, but speaks of its productive nature. The gospel all over the world is bearing fruit and growing. The gospel all over the world bearing fruit and growing. This is characteristic of the gospel, of the gospel's power. That is one of its John Hancock, right? Declaration of that's one of its John Hancock signatures. Yes, by nature, the gospel leads to fruit bearing. The gospel is something that produces another. It is not just a thing, an item, something inanimate. It might be better described as almost being alive or organic. When it comes upon an individual's life in whom God has been working, the seed of the gospel will lodge in fertile good soil and almost by its own power it will proceed to germinate, to sprout, and mature to the point of bearing visible fruit. Um, that is the innate power that God has granted in the gospel. Paul says in the book of Romans that the, it is a power of God for the salvation of those who believe, both Jews and Gentiles. Now, uh, the gospel can become too much of a cognitive thing for us, me. Uh, it certainly needs to be accurate. Uh, the correct understanding is crucial. The kernel or kerygma is very important. We do have to get it right. But the gospel can't stop there. It's not just information or factoids or even proper theological truth. Uh, something should happen where the gospel is present. Something should happen in me. Something should happen in us. Something should happen through us. Like the parable of the sower who scatters seed and that which falls in good soil, it goes on to yield a 30, 60, 100-fold harvest of grain. Whenever I think of like things growing and like, you know, taking off, um, I always remember a favorite book of mine. Uh, when I was a kid, I stumbled upon Roald Dahl, I think the, the, the English writer, um, a children's writer, kind of, I think a little, little gothic at times uh, when I look back. But the first book I read of his and I really loved and still love and would recommend it as, this is my favorite reading book to, to younger kids, is James and the Giant Peach. James and the Giant Peach. And um, it's about this uh, orphan, uh, orphaned little boy who's miserable because his parents have died and uh, his Aunt, his two aunts that he comes under their 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 uh, guardianship are, are really cruel and, and, and makes his life miserable. And uh, you know he's he's resigned to just having a miserable, uh, unhappy life. And he he's in the garden and he runs into an, a weird old man, right, who has this white bag of special, like moving, you know, green things, thousands of them, right, and. He says, this, these, are, these are magic kind of uh, creatures. And, and he, he instructs James how to make a kind of a tonic and drink it. And then all that power, all that magic will change his life and make him uh, super happy. And James is like so elated to receive this. And in his haste, he stumbles over a root and the bag bursts open. All of the 
green magic creatures sink into the soil, right? And they start acting, right? It causes the, of course, the a, a old dead, pretty much dead peach tree to bear this fruit, this amazing peach that continues to grow, right? To grow as big as a house, basically, right? And then the, some of the animals, uh, some of the bugs, like the caterpillar and the earthworm and this, the silkworm, right? There's all these cast of characters. They receive the effect of these, these magic green things and they, uh, they set out on an adventure, right? James and all of these uh, creatures uh, residing in this huge, luscious, um, giant peach and all the misadventures and all the excitement, yeah. Um, I imagine the gospel, right? Unleashed the gospel uh, working in our lives, bearing fruit all in us and all over us and all over the world, kind of in that kind of imagery, right? Uh, noticeable, uh, impactful uh, headlines. Right. Uh, it became a phenomenon. Right. It's transformative, not only for James and the uh, insects, right, but also for uh, the, the countryside and also for history. Yeah, yeah just those magic things, those that, those green things, right. Um, it had its power. And the implication for the gospel, I think, is that we don't have to add or supplement uh, the teaching. In the gospel, there's this DNA, if you will, to transform lives and lead to purposes which God has implanted, literally within the gospel message. Yeah, like a physical seed, which to the naked eye is very tiny, right? It's, that seed is a compact distillation of everything that a planted tree needs to poke up out of the ground and become a visible, living, spreading organism, right? The beauty and, and, and satisfaction of home gardening, right? let alone agribusiness, uh, has fascinated many an amateur or, or expert. Of course, sunshine and water and protection, husbandry, these are all aspects of growth. The real power lies in the seed itself. The real power lies in the gospel itself, right? Contained within it are the instructions and the potential to achieve its teleological form. Yeah, a seed is an offspring of its parent plant. Likewise, the gospel is a seed of God's purpose and power and encoded in its message, and derivation is the power and potential to change a hopeless sinner into a mighty servant of God. The gospel should make us come alive, amen? It does not remain stagnant, right? Uh, note that that's what Paul is saying about the Colossians, right? It's been doing that, bearing fruit since the gospel was first proclaimed. I was really blessed by that detail, actually. The gospel was working from day one. When they heard it, when they understood it, it started uh, churning and moving and beautifying, changing their lives. Verse 6 reports from the moment they heard it. Paul calls it an understanding of God's grace and all of its truths. Yeah. Inherent power in the gospel. Analogously, uh, the teaching or preaching or spreading of the gospel does not depend on governments, whether highly educated or you know, people of worldly stature. God leads the propagation and the effect of the gospel to you and me. 
the gospel was designed to be shared by everyone and anyone. That means you, that means me. And for the Colossians, this meant Epaphras, right? The church, as I said, was not started by the experienced and uber apostle Paul. It's just a local guy named Epaphras. He doesn't have an incredible resume. He was not trained in powerful rhetoric that we know of. He didn't attend seminary. He was given the task and privilege to become an evangelist to his own people. And so he did, right? And he did so faithfully. That's really exciting to me. That in the gospel, right, one of the signatures of the gospel is that you can take someone imperfect and bumbling uh, and ordinary like me, perhaps some of you, and work, right, if we're faithful, if we're willing to serve. Look at what Paul says. Uh, Epaphras' signature is that he's a dear fellow servant and a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. These were his signature qualities. He understood that he could take the gospel as a precious and powerful treasure to others, right? And as proof, the church in Colossae was, 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 was formed. It was, it, it, it was born, right? I, I think most people believe that Epaphras went on to do the work in Laodicea and Herapolis, right? Later, we find that he's actually in prison, sharing a prison cell with Paul. So here is a simple man. Let's just, I don't know. They don't give much biographical detail, but just for my sake, call him simple. And yet, because the gospel came into his life, he became a giant peach, right, for the people there. You and I, I think our lives often, especially in the time of the pandemic, we, we, we get insular, we get self-protective. We start going, I got to do this. I got to protect the things that are most core, whereas... The gospel is trying to burst out, right? He's trying to say, no, no, leave that to me, God says. I will expand. I will protect you, but I want you to expand. I want you to enlarge the, um, the tents of God's grace. Uh, we should experience the gospel signature in our lives. Right? Yeah, <laughs> March's song, right? There's still good news worth repeating. I believe that. Let's believe that. Let's practice that. Let's be a fellow servant. Let's be a faithful minister of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for the early months of January of 2022. And uh, even though uh, challenges abound, um, you are still in the business of formation and of uh, transformation, uh, helping us become more and more like Christ Jesus. And when we look at Jesus's life amidst his power, amidst his uh, miracles, amidst his amazing words, uh, we see uh, suffering, uh, we see hardship, we see challenges, we see uh, rejection, uh, we see uh, him crying out in the dark nights of the soul. Uh, and yet, uh, his power, his grace, his peace were uncontainable. And uh, they came to change 12 men, 12 apostles, and more. And we are the beneficiaries of, of that. 
as we look to examine our own signatures, um, pray that you will give us, pour upon us wisdom and insight and joy and power and um, help us uh, to uh, bear fruit uh, wherever we go, all that we do. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.